I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the coolness that comes from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. This week's episode features Andrew Harris, the Producing Artistic Director at Stage One, a performing arts organization for children in our city. If you live in Louisville, you have either attended a Stage One production as a child or as the parent of a child, and the shows are always magical. Andrew chats with us about his career in theater, the unique attributes of children's shows, and why children's theater is essential to adult theater. Stage One has a couple upcoming plays, which we discuss in this episode. Don't Tell Me I Can't Fly at the end of January and early February, and Dragons Love Tacos, based on the book that will be performing in March and April. Of course, with Omicron, things could change, so be sure to contact Stage 1 directly for updates. But first, we've changed things up just a little bit from last season and last section, which we usually would call Three About Me, but now we call three in the third degree. And why is that, Carrie? Because every time I would say to our guests, are you ready for your three about me? It just sounded weird because I felt like I needed to ask them questions about what deodorant I use or what pair of socks is my (laughs) most favorite. So it just- You thought it was all about you. Yeah, you know, that's the way it sounded. So on paper, it looked fine. But then every time I would say it, it just sounded weird. And it it just got to the point where it drove me nuts. So I think the theme for this week for our conversation right now is that everybody is sick, the end. That's right. Including me. I've got COVID. Fortunately, it's just, it's like a cold, but- it's an annoying cold. And last week my son had it and then my husband had it and now I have it. And so I'm waiting for the other two in the house to get it and testing. It's impossible to find tests and I'm over COVID. My father called this morning and was concerned because he had a fever and chills and thought he had COVID and wanted to know what he should do. So my dad probably has COVID, which means I'm worried that my mom is going to get COVID and they've been vaxxed and they've been boosted, but still, you know, you just worry about your older parents. And then last week, my father-in-law had open heart surgery and he is now home and he is recovering, you know, as expected. But I am terrified that my father-in-law is going to get COVID. So I have been hunkering down in the house, not really going much of anywhere um, except for to the grocery store because we're, you know, we're helping to take care of him and my mother-in-law. And I think I lamented to you earlier this week, Carrie, that because I've not been going anywhere Like I've not had motivation to really get dressed and it's been like slug life, slug life over here. Yeah. Just in my pajamas. When we started recording this and I'm like, but it's Sunday and you're like, no, it's Monday. Oh, oh, okay. It is Monday. I've been in my pajamas. All I've been doing is watching Golden Girls, playing Wordle and reading and that's it. And drinking like so much fluid. I mean, my kidneys are in great shape. I can say that because all I'm doing is peeing. 
so much Sprite and tea and ginger ale and water. And you texted me and said, I'm bored. And I said, well, do you want to call me? Do you want to talk? You're like, I've got nothing to talk about because I've done absolutely nothing. Yes. <laughs> but we, we talked for a little bit anyway, because you had to try to explain to me Wordle, which I see everybody posting about. I've not gotten on the Wordle train. Apparently, I need to try it out. But well, it sounds I will kind be- of complicated. It, well, it was at first, but then you get used to it and it's not complicated anymore. But I will be thrilled to not play Wordle because I found the archive for Wordle. Like they come out with a new one every day, but then there's also an archive. And so I've literally been playing through the entire archive of Wordle because I have nothing else to do. I'm so bored. Is it an app like uh, Scrabble? No, I don't know. You, well, how do you play know. it? You play it on I, your well, phone. No, it's a website. Oh, it's a website. Okay, so yeah. like a new one comes out for every day or I what? I think every day. I don't know. You're okay. asking me a lot of questions and my brain just isn't fully equipped <laughs> okay. to answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that much about it. I, I'm, and, and I mean, here's the thing. I'm so glad I have the energy to be bored. I'm so glad I'm not sick enough that I'm in the hospital or that I just am laying in bed and want to die. I'm very thankful for that. I'm triple vaxxed. I wouldn't trade places with with anybody else who has COVID and is miserable, but I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm over, over it. it. I'm over it. Well, you know, we could always go back to playing words with friends. We could. I, that makes I, me uh, feel like we're back at 2020 all over again. And I, I just, know. I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, we don't have to. I know yeah. I haven't played since 2020 because I played it so much during the early part of the pandemic that I got really burnt out on it. Yeah. But, well, this has been a real downer of an opener, but you know, that's life right now, I guess. That's right. But and- we had fun talking to Andrew. Let's hear what Andrew has to say. He's going to, he's going to pump us up and make us feel happy again. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure on Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, you've got the weight of COVID on your shoulders. Go. (laughs) Andrew Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for letting me be here. I remember being a chaperone on my kids' field trips to stage one theater when they were in school. And it was always, you know, the exciting day to get to go downtown to see a play at stage one. Before we talk about your role there, tell us just a little bit about you. I think sometimes people forget that plays are books and I'm sure you have read many plays. You've brought them to life. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your reading life as a drama student and, and performer. As a kid, initially, I hated reading. Loved stories, but I hated reading because, you know, I wanted to be outside playing. I wanted to to do other things. And it probably wasn't until about fifth or sixth grade that I I really got into reading. And the first book that got me excited was The Hobbit by Tolkien. I read that book as a kid and it was transformative for me just in the way that it opened my imagination. Because, you know, I always thought about reading as, you know, realistic, dealing with the real world. I never really thought about it as this kind of rich fantasy world. And and it was so amazing for me that it got me really excited. I read all of the Tolkien's books. I read all of those. And then I just started reading lots of different things, you know, and I read all the time. I'm a a prolific reader. I'm a fast reader. Mm -hmm. So I devour books very quickly. It, It was really transformative for me. And it honestly helped me in school as well. 
when, especially in things like history and social studies, I always hated that kind of stuff. It's boring until I realized, <laughs> oh, these are just stories. Mm. This is mm-hmm. just storytelling. That's all this is. And so even my academic reading took a whole different spin once, once I really kind of opened myself up to understanding, you know, the power that books have and what, what storytelling can look like. And uh, obviously that translated into my drama world. So Andrew, I have interviewed you before for, for a magazine article. So I, I know a little bit about your personal journey to the theater, but could you tell our listeners, what was your path to becoming interested in theater arts? I grew up in a very small town in Tennessee, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And when I was about 14 years old, that's when I really got involved in theater. We had a small little community theater that had kind of a kid's program. And it wasn't, you know, a quarter mile from my house. And, and I was such an imaginative kid. My mom would always say, you ought to go down there and, and do that. And I'm like, yeah, no, whatever. I don't have any interest in that. You know, I'm going to go out and play. Until, like I said, about 14 and a couple of my friends got into a play. Um, and I got to miss school for a couple of days to perform. Mm. And I and I said to myself, I like missing school. <laughs> I should go down there. And I had no idea what theater was. I didn't know how to audition. I mean, I had absolutely no clue, utterly clueless. And, you know, I saw that they were having auditions coming up for The Wizard of Oz. Rode down to this theater and walked into, you know, the day they're having auditions. And there's, you know, felt like a thousand kids and parents there and everybody who seemed to know what they're doing. I was utterly lost. And, you know, some nice person, you know, you hear to audition, fill this form out. I'm like, okay, you know, name, address, experience. And I wrote, yes, I would like some. Uh, and <laughs> handed it back to them. I didn't know what I was doing. And they're like, great, go into the theater. You know, now traditionally when you audition for a play, the only people in the room with you are the decision makers, you know, the producer, director, whomever, but there's no other actors. You're by yourself, at least in an initial audition. Unfortunately, this audition, everybody went into the auditorium. Everybody sat there. Everybody was going up on stage auditioning in front of one another. And I wasn't smart enough to actually watch other people and see what was going on. I went and sat in there and talked to my friends and hung out and chatted and didn't pay any attention until they called my name. I'm like, huh? Like, Come up on stage. Okay. What am I doing? And I walked up on stage and then there was this really long, awkward pause while everybody's staring at me because clearly I'm supposed to do something and I don't have a clue. Finally, someone says, um, what are you going to sing? And I went, excuse me? <laughs> Because while I have many talents, singing is not one of them. And so uh, I, in a moment of panic, blurted out, Amazing Grace. Ooh, bad choice. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard song to sing, even if you are a singer. Of course, the, the pianist is like, great, I know that, and starts playing. It's like, oh, crap, I've got to sing now. And, uh, and so I attempted to sing it, and it was horrible. I mean, it was awful. It was like, you know, it sounded like I was strangling a cat. And if I was eight years old, it would have been cute, and everybody would have said, oh, look at that cute kid. He's just singing enthusiastically and it doesn't matter that he can't sing at 14 it's not cute and you're also (laughs) old enough to know that you're humiliating yourself in front of everyone so it was a terrible experience and and at the end of my my brutal song i got the very cliched thank you which means (laughs) you're done and and so i left and i left knowing i had failed miserably and utterly and, and i was frustrated i was mad Not that I messed up or that I didn't do well. I was mad at myself for not knowing what I was doing. You know, I could have handled failure if I had done my best and it didn't work out. I probably would have gone on and never gone back. But fortunately, I'm tenacious enough that's like I couldn't accept failure because of lack of knowledge. And so I waited. And finally, the next audition came around and it was for the Phantom Tollbooth. Not a musical. I checked. (laughs) 
So I go back and I'm like, okay, I go in here. I fill out the form experience. Yes. I still want some. I'm, I'm feeling more confident. I know what I'm doing. I'm in there. I don't have to sing. I wasn't smart enough to remember that I should watch what other people are doing. So I know what I'm supposed to do. I was 14. I was hanging out with my friends. And then, uh, you know, they call me up on stage. I walk up on stage and then there's that awkward pause again. Now, what am I supposed to do? I got the, um, do you have a monologue? I don't even know what a monologue is. And some nice kid in the front row goes, here, 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 read this. And what he handed me was an excerpt from T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, oh. which is the, the poems that the musical Cats is based on. I don't know if you're familiar with the musical Cats, but it's all like angelical cats. Right. I'm like, is that a real word? What is this? Is this Latin? You know, and I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to cold read this and I don't even know what these words are and it's poetry. And then uh, I heard the sharp intake of breath from uh, people kind of adjudicating the audition. And before they could say it, I just went, thank you. <laughs> And I stormed out, you know, once again, humiliated, angry uh, at myself. And there was a nice man at the theater. He followed me. He uh, remembered my previous epic failure. Uh, and he, you know, he stopped me. How would you like to work on the lights for the play? And I paused and I looked at him very intently and I said, do I get to miss school? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes, you do. I said, Sign me up. Uh, he recognized something in me that I was trying to do and that, you know, I kept giving it a try and just didn't know what I was doing. And he gave me that opportunity. So I worked on the lights and, you know, kind of figured out what all this theater thing is. So when the next audition came around, Treasure Island, not a musical, uh, you know, I had my little monologue. I had like my pirate voice practiced and everything. <laughs> and, and I got cast in the show. That was kind of the beginning for me. And, and once I stepped foot on stage, that was it. I was done. That was my world. And, you know, did plays all through high school, studied it in college and have been fortunate enough to have a career telling stories. Well, now you are at Stage One Theater, and I believe that this year is the 75th anniversary. 75 years. Yeah. That is correct. Tell us just a little bit of the history of Stage One. Well, like I said, we're 75 years old. Um, you know, Stage One started out originally as the Louisville Children's Theater with a specific focus at that time of just giving kids opportunities to perform. And that went on for a number of years, 30 plus years. We started in 1946, but then in the mid to late seventies, there was a name shift for stage one. We became stage one, the Louisville Children's Theater. And with that shift came the addition of, you know, still performance opportunities and education opportunities for kids, but the addition of a professional adult performers, it was at that time stage one became associated with the Actors' Equity Association, the professional union for actors and stage managers. We, we remain one of only two theaters in Kentucky that are uh, union theaters, stage one and uh, Actors Theater of Louisville. We started really shifting towards not just performance opportunities for kids, but also really creating high quality professional performance opportunities for student audiences as well, primarily with a focus on the schools, public audiences, certainly, but really a focusing on the education landscape and the school system and the you know field trips, the need for students to have the opportunities to have these kind of arts experiences in their academic life. I've been doing that really ever since, you know, things have kind of evolved over the years in terms of, you know, the way we produce theater and how we look towards our audiences, you know, back Many years ago, schools could take as many field trips as they want, and you know things were very different. Now, it's a little more challenging. There's a lot more academic rigor required for 
schools to even take field trips. And so, you know, as we develop plays, we make sure that we are in constant alignment with what's happening in the education landscape so that, you know, we are offering plays that are not only professionally relevant, that are entertaining, but that also support the learning that's taking place in the schools. You know, that's really kind of what we focus on. Education is really at the heart of everything that we do. You know, education for our students, education for our teachers, education for emerging artists getting experience, education on what the arts can do for us, how the arts are not just about entertainment, but help us to become, you know, better human beings and all of those things. It's a pretty awesome thing to get to do. And the fact that that we've been around for 75 years, I think, speaks to the power of the work that we do and the importance to the community. Now, when you were starting out in theater, did you always have an interest in children's theater in particular, or did you just sort of end up there by happenstance? Uh, It's a little bit of both, actually. So that little theater where I first got my start, the Oak Ridge Playhouse, when I was about uh, 17, you know, I've been doing theater there for a couple of years. They had no kind of education programming or anything like that. And so a friend of mine and I talked the head of the theater into paying us to teach some Saturday classes to younger kids. Not that we were actually qualified to teach, but I had such a, we'll say, non-traditional pathway into theater. You know, most kids who had had the failure that I had at that first audition, they never would have come back. Mm-hmm. And so I, had, I felt a strong need to share what little I knew so that the next kid like me didn't have to do what I did. And so we talked them into letting us share what little knowledge we had, which became kind of a regular thing for a number of years and actually helped develop uh, some education programming there and started doing summer camps, you know, that we were leading as, as high school students. And then as early college students, I would come back in the summers to teach for them. You know, I had that nice gentleman, his name was Warren Webb, who asked me to do the lights, who took the time to say, hey, this guy's got some potential. I need to help him out. And, uh, I felt a real responsibility to make sure that I passed that on. And so, you know, teaching theater to kids is something that I really started doing from the very beginning and something that I maintained during college. I went and taught classes at theaters, continued to perform, but that kind of education piece had always been a big part of what I did because it was a big part of how I got involved in the arts. When I had the opportunity to come to stage one, 20 years ago, it's hard to imagine I've been here that long, but I came first as the education director. And so, you know, the opportunity to come and uh, not only teach kids, but, you know, perform for kids, direct for kids, you know, help them understand what theater is, what it can be, and and what it does for us as people. It's it's a big responsibility. It's something I take very personally, something I take very seriously, and uh, something that gets me excited every day to get up and do. The upcoming season that Stage One has planned has two plays on deck, one that's written as a play and then another that's an adaptation of a very popular children's book. (laughs) So how does Stage One go about choosing what plays it performs in any given season? You know, it's it's a real balancing act. You know, our primary audience are the students in the classrooms, but it's interesting because we are performing for the kids but the, the decision makers who decide what the kids get to see are the teachers, you know, or the administrators. So, you know, when we're looking at putting a season together, we've got to make sure that we've got plays that are relevant and appropriate for our audience, but that our teachers and administrators also see the value in. And really, it's kind of a balance. You know, we want to make sure that we've got plays that are relevant to students from kindergarten all the way up through high school. 
So we've got to balance out and make sure that we have all grade levels represented over the course of our season. We also uh, want to make sure that we've got plays that are not just the plays teachers want to see, although that's important, but sometimes we've got to balance that out with plays that are stories that are important to tell because, you know, there are certain titles that will sell themselves. Uh, Dragons Love Tacos, popular children's book. Teachers see that and they say, I love that book. We should go see that because I love that book. They know it. It's something they understand automatically. But then you take another play like our upcoming play called Don't Tell Me I Can't Fly, which is an original piece inspired by the life and experience of Della Wells, who is a prominent African-American folk artist. And it focuses kind of on her childhood, navigating growing up in Milwaukee during the, you know, the unrest of the uh, early to mid 60s. And it's a powerful story of perseverance about a young girl, how she navigates along with her family, these challenging times while still allowing herself to grow creatively and to plant the seeds of the artist that she would become. It's an inspiring story, but the name of the play alone is not going to sell itself to a teacher. We have to make sure they understand that this is a story that is important and this is why we're telling it. So really, when we put a season together, you're trying to balance all of those components to make sure that uh, that we've got things that teachers recognize, that they understand, that they already know how it fits into their curricular world. But also, we want to make sure that we are telling stories that are representative of our community, that are diverse, that help us challenge the world we're in, help us understand the world we're in. Theater is about entertainment, certainly, but it's also a tool to help us understand the world around us. It's a playground for empathy. It's a, a really important way that we learn to process and deal with emotions, tough situations, you know, navigating the world. And so we really try to balance all of that out in putting a season together. I love that phrase that you just said, a playground for empathy. I think you could brand your <laughs> that way. That's awesome. So you mentioned that Don't Tell Me I Can't Fly is already a play. With Dragons Love Tacos, was that in play form or did you or someone at stage one have to adapt that book into a script? Tell us a little bit about the nitty gritty of that. Sure. So we are not the ones who adapted it. Uh, actually, a playwright named Ernie Nolan, he has the same job I have at the Nashville Children's Theater. He's the producing artistic director of the Nashville Children's Theater. He's the one who actually did the adaptation of it. And it, it is utterly brilliant. You know, you have a, a children's book about not feeding dragons spicy tacos, but there's very little dialogue in it. How do you turn that into a play? You know, what they have done so brilliantly is to adapt this play. There's seven or so characters in the play, but only one of them talks. <laughs> you, you've got this character who he's kind of a, a cross between like a, a Jack Hanna and a, a, like an infomercial guy, you know, <laughs> and, and he's the guy who steps out of the TV and is talking with the boy and his dog about all of these things. And I got to tell you about dragons and everything. And so much of the story is done through physical performance. A lot of the, the actors, all of their performances is based on just physicality. And it is just a brilliant way to incorporate yet another form of storytelling, not just that, you know, verbal component, but how we can tell stories and how we can communicate through the use of our body. And, and it's just really hilarious. <laughs> so uh, I wish I could, could take credit for uh, commissioning this piece. Stage One does commission a lot of work. We've got a rich history of, of originating new work, but, uh, but I can't claim credit for this one. I wish I could. 
you know, with these children's plays, and you all have performances that you do there, what has it been like with Omicron and vaccines and all the constant pivoting and adjusting? <laughs> and, and what do you anticipate for these shows that are coming up the end of this month and further in the next couple months? Sure. Well, pivot is the million dollar word that everybody is using these days. You know, I'll be honest, running a theater company that primarily performs for student audiences during a pandemic is not an easy thing to do. Uh, matter of fact, Dragons Love Tacos, that is the play that we were going to produce. Uh, we were one week away from opening that play when uh, when the pandemic started and everything was shut down back, back in March of 2020. And so I'm dedicated. We're going to do this show. But um, I mean, we had the schools quit going on field trips. They then, you know, went to NTI and with no schools to come to the theater, I couldn't produce. And so, you know, one of the adjustments we made last year is I uh, was talking to some education colleagues of mine about what do you need? There's non-traditional instruction. You know, what do the teachers need? But more importantly, what do the students need? And what we uh, quickly landed on is, is what they didn't need was academic support from us. They had their teachers to do that, and their teachers are experts at that, and we're navigating that world with them. It was really the social-emotional side of things that you know they were suffering on. And so part of our initial pivot, we created a virtual play series that we called Theater for Everywhere, which was a series of three plays targeted at different levels of elementary school all tied to a different aspect of social emotional learning. We had a play that was focused on recognizing and naming big emotions. That play, you know, is about helping kids to to see what their emotions are, understand how to deal with them, how to process them. We had another for that second, third grade group called The Right Shoes, which really focused on socialization and helping kids navigate, you know, the challenging relationships you have. My friend likes my other friend better or wants to play with my other friend, so what's wrong with me? you know, how the kids navigate those moments um, socially. Uh, And then we had a third piece called Reframe that was about recognizing and celebrating the things that make us both unique and different, that focused on a young African-American girl on picture day at school. And she comes into conflict with a young Caucasian Jewish boy who he doesn't understand the cultural significance of hair. She doesn't understand why he wears a yarmulke. And what starts out as some kind of you know, antagonistic behavior between them then becomes an opportunity for these two students to learn about what makes them both unique and special and the things they have in common and how to celebrate those as well as celebrating the things that make them unique. Uh, and so we created that virtual play series and you know, we did it without any distribution plan of you know, we're going to sell this and all the schools are going to buy it. And here's our marketing campaign. We did it because we knew it was right. We knew it it was what uh, the schools needed. And we had an opportunity to partner with uh, JCPS and talk to them. And they believed so strongly in what we were doing that they helped us make all three of those plays available to every elementary school in uh, Jefferson County free of charge which was just an amazing partnership to know that we were able to do that. The archdiocese did the same thing. So it was really phenomenal to have the opportunity to do that. We started this current season with the intention of resuming live theater, which we did. We just finished our first live play in two years, the best Christmas pageant ever. We were able to perform that live uh, right before the holidays. But we started the season with another virtual play, still tied to that social emotional space called Jamie Whatever which is about a young black Muslim boy with a difficult to pronounce last name. 
about how he navigates the school environment and recognizes and values the importance of his name. You don't just say, no, you can say it however you want or don't worry about it. No, your name is important. It's understanding your identity is important. And, and we developed that play along with a principal at one of the elementary schools, Dr. Jamika Howard, served as an education consultant with us and helped us develop that piece. So again, we made sure it was in alignment with what was happening in the schools and what the students needed. And so we created that as another piece of our Theater for Everywhere virtual series, shifted back to, to live theater with the best Christmas pageant ever. We are in rehearsal right now for Don't Tell me I can't fly. They're, they're rehearsing about 30 feet from me in another oh, wow. room at, at, at this moment. I can I can hear them in there. But uh, with the rise of the Omicron variant and, you know, the potential of going back to some level of NTI, you know, that's going to be a challenge. And so we're actually working right now with our actors union and with, you know, JCPS and with our publisher to try to pivot that into a digital experience so that if we have to cancel the live performances to make sure that we're keeping our students and teachers safe, then uh, we still have the opportunity to make sure that this important story gets out to everyone. But when you buy the rights, I guess, to do a play, it's mm -hmm. not the same for digital as it is live. Is that correct? So you that can't is, automatically make it digital just because suddenly you can't do live theater. Is that, that accurate? That is 100% accurate. You pay for the uh, the live performance rights. If you want to do digital rights, it's a very different circumstance, primarily because, you know, live, it happens and then it's done. When you record it, they don't want you to hold on to it for posterity because, you know, this is other people's intellectual property. Same reason why you can't pirate movies. You know, it impacts their, you know, revenue streams and all of that. So if you want digital rights, there's a different cost model that goes with it. Fortunately, the publishers that we're working with right now recognize what we're doing and that we're doing this not as a, um, an approach to sell to public audiences in an effort to make tons of money off of it, but that this is for the students in need. And, and they're being very generous and working with us on the rights to, uh, to make this available. I love the, that your theater has partnerships with local school districts. And I'm wondering, what do you think that live theater teaches young audiences that is different from other types of learning that they do? Well, you know, I think live theater does a lot of things for us. You know, like I said earlier, theater is about not only passing on stories and traditions, but it's about sharing the human experience. But um, it helps us experience the power of storytelling in a very focused way. You know, we live in a digital age now where, you know, kids are looking at their phones while also having, you know, Netflix up over here in the background. And we've got a whole generation of people that they like to use the phrase multitasking. I'm doing multiple things at once, but really that means you're not doing anything. You're not giving your full attention to anything. And so that, that movie was on, that TV show was on, but did I really experience it? Or did I just kind of hear it in the background? In this digital age, when you're watching film and television, so many of the decisions are made for you. The camera decides what you look at. Somebody else has told you where to put your eyes. If there's something happening, oh no, we need to see that this guy has something in his pocket, then suddenly the camera shifts to you know, a close-up of a man putting his hand in the pocket. You can't miss it. It tells you what to do, which makes you a passive participant in the experience to an extent. In the world of live theater, you don't have a camera to do that which means as an audience, you have to be an active member of what's happening. You have to actively watch what's going on. You have to process it. Also, you know, 
film and television with the advent of, of all of the, the technology, things can be like hyper realistic and, mm. and, and super digital special effects and everything that are just amazing. You can't create that level of realism on stage. And so what you do instead is you tap into imagination. You're forcing them to think creatively, to watch creatively, and to recognize we don't have to be spoon-fed all this hyper-realism. <laughs> we can watch in a way that lets our brain engage in a much more interesting and creative way. And that creativity and the fostering of that imagination is so critical in our lives. When you talk about businesses, they, they want people that are innovative and creative and all of these things. Well, those skills don't just happen passively. Yeah. You have to nurture them and develop them. You have to foster them. And that's what live theater does for us. So I want to ask that that plays on what you just said. So because of developing theater for younger audiences, do the elements that you put in your performances, because you're dealing with children and their imaginations, and that's very different from adults and, and sort of the, the adult imagination, are there different things that you have to incorporate or are there things that you don't incorporate because your audience is children? You know, that's a great question. And uh, I would say because of our audience, we don't produce the plays any different than we would for any audience. I like to, to talk about it in terms of there really only are two kinds of theater, good theater and bad theater. <laughs> and, and we do good theater. Now, what is different is who your intended audience is, and that impacts the stories you tell, you know, what plays you might do, but it doesn't impact the quality of what you do. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that because you're dealing with young audiences that they aren't smart enough to, to understand. We have to talk down, we have to kind of pander to them, and things have to be, you know, overly precious. You know, as long as you talk in a silly voice, then they're going to laugh and it's okay. Actually, students are one of the smartest audiences that exists because we as adults, when we go to a piece of theater, we already go in with kind of these expectations. We go in with these kind of reservations, these barriers. We go in saying, I hope I like this. We go in saying, you know, it's your job to convince me that this is good. So I'm here to judge and evaluate the quality of what you do. And I'll let you know how I feel at the end. <laughs> Kids don't do that. Kids go in all in. They're bought in from the beginning, 100%. And it's your job to make sure you don't lose them. You make sure that you recognize that they are a smart and savvy audience, but you can't treat them like they aren't very, very intelligent, that they aren't able to really track what's going on. Because here's the thing, you know, as adults, we also, while we have those barriers, we also have certain mechanisms that we use if something isn't kind of up to par, you know, we say things like, well, I see what they were going for, or <laughs> maybe they're having an off night, or I liked this one thing. The lights were great. You know, we have these kind of excuses that we make as adults. If it's not up to par for a kid, they tell you, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> they're charming that way. <laughs> they are. Well, they, they are honest. They are the most engaged and honest audience that you will ever have. And that is brilliant. You know, you may be doing, if you give a mouse a cookie, but you better approach it as if you're doing Hamlet at the Royal Shakespeare, <laughs> because that's how the kids approach it. It is that important to them. As seriously as we take our jobs in life, students take the act of playing and imagination. That's their job. And they take it just as serious as we do our work. And don't you dare mess that up. 
as you were talking about this, it made me think about children's literature and how a lot of people, you know, once they reach a certain age, they're like, well, I, I don't read picture books or I don't read books that are for third through fifth grade or whatever. Even though if you do read those, you realize that there's a lot of great content and superb stories and empathy and all those great lessons that you're missing out on a huge genre of potential if you designate that as, well, that's for kids. And so, oh. you know, the, the same thing applies to children's theater. And so, you know, there was a real value in that to me as an adult. Absolutely. I mean, when I direct a play, opening night, that's all fun and everything. But when I know how well we've done is I go to the very first student matinee performance and I don't sit and watch the play to see how my actors do. I sit and watch the audience. And that tells me how we've done. That tells me if we've done our job. When you do a play that's targeted at those middle school kids, for example, you know, they're one of the toughest audiences oh, yeah. in the world, right? And and you put on a play that's maybe got some, you know, appropriate content, maybe a little serious, and you have, you know, 600 middle schoolers sitting silent in a theater completely engaged with what's going on stage, you've done your job. And that's what I watch for. Besides your live full-scale productions, you all also have what's called the Storyteller Series. So so what is that? What is the Storyteller Series? It is one of my favorite things that we do. Storytellers, it's a series that is part performance, part literacy. At its core, the simplest way to explain it is it is dramatic readings of children's books. And so at a storyteller's performance, this is targeting more of our younger uh, demographic, you know, students as young as, you know, three years old, all the way up through probably eight, nine years old is, is kind of what the audience base tends to be. But this is a, a performance where we have several teaching artists, actor educators who take a popular children's book and they read it to you, but they read it in a very engaging and interactive way. You see them with book in hand. I want you to think it's a play. We want you, both students and parents, to see that we're just reading to you. This is just reading, guys. You can all do this at home. But, you know, while they're reading, they act out what's happening in the story. We build in audience engagement. So we might pause and bring some students up pre-pandemic, bring some students up on stage to, you know, oh, no, the, the burglars are coming. We need six of you to come up here and be burglars and chase the duck. Here's here's your hat, duck hat. You know, we do some minimal costume and props. So we put some things in there. We do some at our seat audience engagement where the students are engaging with the actor. So it's a very active participatory experience with the kids. We also have a live musician who does um, improvisational underscoring on the piano throughout the experience. And we usually, in a, in a storyteller performance, we do about three of those. Usually the books are connected um, you know, thematically. And we'll do a series of three of those uh, together to create about a 45-minute experience you know, one of the things I love about it, and I always say is that uh, because of the very relaxed, comfortable, interactive nature of this program is there's nothing that anybody can do that messes anything up. So. What I love about your programs, too, is that it's aiming at books and plays and storytelling in a completely different way. So there are kids who are just natural book lovers, you sure. know, but there are some that, and you said you started out this way, who are not. Mm -hmm. But seeing stories acted out can try to win over those kids to literacy and to empathy in a, in a different way. Another thing that's cool about the Storytellers program is that we scan the books in and we project them on the screen. 
So while you see the actors holding the books, you can see the book on the giant screen behind us and read along. Um, and we even partner with our friends over at Carmichael's Kids, the bookstore, and they come and, you know, whatever books we're doing that day, they'll bring them and, and, and sell them to people in the lobby. So a lot of times you're seeing parents and kids after experiencing it, they're like, I want that book. And they're oh, leaving awesome. with books, which is just so wonderful. So, you know, with the pandemic, the arts community has really struggled. And I think that maybe because of that, people have realized that the community arts is more important than what we maybe give it credit for. And mm -hmm. stage one is just one of many children's theaters around the countries. What do you think are some added value that these theaters contribute to their towns and regions? Well, you know, one thing that, that I like to remind people of, especially, you know, those of us that have our focus primarily on the younger audience you know, people love the arts, the arts, they, they're a vibrant part of towns and of communities. You know, when cities are courting businesses, they want to know what the art scene is like, you know, the quality of life for the families that are going to live here. Well, guess what? You don't grow up and become an arts patron, an arts supporter, an arts participant. If you haven't had an arts experience, you know, you don't wake up at 30 and suddenly go, I'm going to go to the opera today. <laughs> you know, you have you have to have had this cultivated in you. you know, theaters and other arts organizations that focus on our younger audience uh, create opportunities like that. We're the gateway to the arts for so many of these young people. We help them understand what the arts are, what the arts can do, the value of the arts. The fact that you can have creative processes in your life. I tell all of the actors that perform for us, but every time you set foot on that stage, every time you perform for somebody, especially a young person, you have an opportunity, an obligation, a responsibility to inspire. And that's what we do. That's what the arts do for all of us. You know, stage one is doing some amazing things. Thank you so much for, for telling us about what stage one is up to and fingers crossed that you all can continue with, doing your live performances of your upcoming shows. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Andrew Harris and with Carrie. Carrie, what's going on over there? So I have finished a book that was on my list of five books that I want to read in 2021, but it's called The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gordachek. Now I did something a little bit interesting when I was reading this book. I was also listening to the audiobook of Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. And actually this was kind of the perfect way to do these books. The Witch's Heart tells the story of Angrabotha, and she was Loki's wife. Now I had, you know, I've heard of Loki. I've seen the Marvel movies, but I had never heard of Angrabotha in Norse mythology. She is the wife of Loki. He also had another wife, but she is also the mother of Hel, Fenrir the wolf, and Jormungand the serpent. You know, I had heard of Hell, again, from the Marvel movies, and I had sort of knew about Fenrir, but reading the book, The Witch's Heart, and listening to the audiobook of Norse mythology, I was completely immersed in these stories. And so the coolest thing is that at bedtime, I would read about Angrabotha and hear about something that Loki had 
gotten himself into. And then I would listen to the Norse mythology book that would tell the same story, but in a slightly different way about one of the escapades that Loki had gotten himself involved in with the Norse gods. So it was really reinforcing these stories and helping make them more memorable. And so sometimes it would go the opposite way. Sometimes I would hear a story in Norse mythology. And then that night when I was reading, I would read about it in The Witch's Heart. So just combining the two was really fascinating. Neil Gaiman retold the stories and narrated those himself. And so that was great to listen to him. But The Witch's Heart, you know, it's Norse mythology, but it's also the story of a mother and a woman who's been betrayed by various gods. And I just, I thought it was fascinating. I think I gave both of them four stars, but you know, if you want to really immerse yourself in Norse mythology, doing them together would be the perfect way to go. Yeah. Highly recommend. Especially for people who love Madeline Miller's like Circe and the Song of Achilles retellings like that. Uh, I've heard that this is a good one. Yeah. Well, and likewise, I've listened to uh, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. It is brilliant. Yeah. Mm, it is yeah. brilliant. So, Andrew, what have you been reading lately? You know, the book I'm kind of obsessed with right now, ironically, it's a children's book. It's uh, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane oh, by Kate that's B. Camillo. Awesome one. Oh, I, I adore it. Well, spoiler alert, there is a play version. And if all goes well, we're going to produce the play version next year. Oh, awesome. I actually came across the play first and I read the play and, you know, I read plays and there are a lot of plays. I'm like, I like that. Or this would be a great play to produce. But that play, it was like I was a kid again reading it. It it just took me into this story and and had such a profound impact. That's like, I've got to go back and read the book because a 60 page pay script can only do justice to the story so much. Sometimes you need to go back to the original. And so I'm reading uh, the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane, which follows the story of Edward Tulane, who is a a, a rabbit, a a China doll that uh, belongs to a young girl. While it's not like the velveteen rabbit, he doesn't come to life. He's not anthropomorphic in that way. You get to hear his thoughts and he's a very arrogant, you know, stuck up haughty thing in the beginning. (laughs) And uh, there's a sea voyage across the ocean, you know, on an ocean liner and uh, the young girl drops him over the side. And so he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, And then the story follows this long journey that this toy has. It gets fished out of the ocean by, you know, a fisherman's net and gets passed around from different people. And it's following the different experiences people have with this particular toy. And over time, he becomes, you know, tattered and eventually broken. And simultaneously, he's learning the value of love and of what it means to love and what relationships are. Until finally, he ends up in the hands of someone who restores these, these toys and actually restores him to pristine condition. And then he sits on a shelf in a toy shop and all of the other toys are getting bought. And he just sits there until an elderly woman comes in with her granddaughter and she sees Edward Tulane on the shelf and, and purchases him. It is so charming and poignant and touching. And oh, it's a brilliant story. And I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Matter of fact, anybody here in our office, you know, if I bring it up, they're like, yes, yes, we know you want to do the play. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we're, we're gonna do it. We understand. We know you're directing. Yes, we know. We know. <laughs> oh, that sounds so good. I haven't read that one. Well, Amy, I think you have been dipping your toes into mythology, haven't you? Well, I was gonna say we we have sort of a 
Nordic retelling theme going on here with you and I, because I'm going to talk about a book today called The Raven and the Reindeer by T. Kingfisher. And this is technically a young adult novel, but I think any adult would appreciate it as well, because this book is a retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale of the Snow Queen. And I'll be honest and say that I've heard of the Snow Queen fairy tale, but I don't really know it. I'm not familiar with it. So in my opinion, you don't need to be familiar with it to enjoy this book, because my impression is that this is a loosely inspired but not an exact retelling so this is the story of Goethe and Kay a girl and a boy who grew up right next to each other as neighbors and they were best friends in a small Nordic village in Norway I believe and as they grow into teenagers Goethe is sure that Kay is the boy for her unfortunately Kay wants to be her friend in private but when he's in public around all of his friends, he, he kind of acts like he doesn't know her, or treats her badly, and that he's embarrassed of her. But she's willing to tolerate this behavior because she thinks that she loves him. Now, Gerda has the ability to see and do things that others can't, but she doesn't know it yet. So in this world, like in many fairy tale lands, there's magic and witchcraft all around. And one day, Gerda sees Kay in a snowy field outside the village, hopping into a sled with the most beautiful woman that she's ever seen. She's blindingly beautiful, and her sled is being pulled by a team of otters. And they fly into the air, and they disappear. And when she tells her grandmother what she saw, the granny tells her the legend of the Snow Queen, who kidnaps handsome young men takes them back to her palace in the far north where they stay until they freeze to death. Gerda decides she must rescue Kay and she embarks on an adventure by herself along with a talking raven who befriends her along the way and along the trail she encounters witches and then a gang of bandits who capture her but it is with the bandits that she meets Janna and Janna is the daughter of the bandit leader and she wants to help Gerda get to the Snow Queen. So they steal a sleigh and a geriatric reindeer from the bandits and they head on their way. And this is where it gets a little weird and wonderful because Gerda is able to use the reindeer in a unique way with some magic, of course, to get them to their destination. And I don't want to tell you anymore because to me, this was one of the magical parts of the book and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But in the process of trying to save Kay, Gerda comes to some realizations about herself and who she's meant to be with, and maybe it isn't Kay. I thought this was a wonderful book to read in the winter season. I read it over the holidays, and while we were in weird 70-degree weather, <laughs> immersing myself in this mystical land of snow and reindeer and little otters who pull sleds was exactly <laughs> what I needed. Well, we are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, Andrew's going to answer his three in the third degree. We are back with Andrew Harris, and he's going to answer his questions. So, Andrew, when I interviewed you for a magazine article, you had gotten involved in martial arts as a result of some much too honest commentary from your son. Are you still doing that? And what style of martial arts do you practice? I am still doing that. Yes, my, my son told me that I looked like I was fat and out of shape and was going to die. And, <laughs> Uh, when he was about eight years old, you know, Dad, will you just take martial arts classes with me? And I was like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> and so, yeah, I've been doing it for about, I guess, maybe it's been six years. 
almost seven years now. I started out doing two martial arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Shaolin Kempo Karate. Now, during the uh, the pandemic, I have pretty much shifted uh, solely to doing uh, Shaolin Kempo Karate because I don't have to roll around on the floor with my arms wrapped around somebody else sweating on me, mm. which felt like a really not pandemic safe thing to do. <laughs> Uh, so I haven't been uh, doing that, although I, I plan to go back to it at some point. But I've really been focusing on on Shaolin Kempo Karate. My son and I both are, I've caught up to him in, in rank. We're now uh, both third degree brown belts. So we're, uh, we're working toward our black belts, hopefully in the next year or so. And uh, not only do I take it now, now I'm one of the lead instructors. So I teach the kids classes. I, I teach some of the adult classes and everything. And it's, you know, it's never something I thought I would do. Never something I had any interest in. And now I absolutely love it. And, and I get to do it with my son, which is amazing. Although he's 15 now and getting faster and stronger than me. So I have to keep reminding him that I'm, I'm still smarter than he is. <laughs> right. I'm still your dad. <laughs> right. Dad foo will trump anything you ever learn. Right. <laughs> so question number two, you and your family have had some cool camping experiences. What has been the most magical thing you have seen while camping? Oh gosh, man, we love camping. My wife and son and I, and again, this is one of those things that we did spontaneously. Our camping journey really started when we decided we wanted to go take a big trip out West to the Grand Canyon. And, you know, it's expensive. And we thought, Hey, we could just camp. Although we had never camped before. We're like, sure, we can do that. You know, did a couple of practice camping trips and then packed everything together, bought a bunch of equipment, packed it in a couple of bags and took a train from uh, Indianapolis to Flagstaff, Arizona, got in a car and spent two weeks camping across the West. We went to Zion Canyon, Bryce Canyon, and then both the North Rim and the South Rim of the Grand Canyon. And I would have to say, probably one of the early places we went to was Zion Canyon. And my son was in fourth grade at the time. And as we were driving into the canyon and you're starting to see the giant mountains and, and everything in the landscape, my son, who had spent all of his life here in you know Louisville and Kentucky at that time, had never seen anything like that before. So, I mean, you'd have thought we had landed on an alien planet. He was so giddy with excitement, but she and I were equally as giddy. And so we were all kind of in this car, like you could just see everybody's mounting excitement of oh my gosh, this is where we are. We're here. We're going to do this. We're on an adventure. We're going to camp our way across the universe. And uh, that first initial moment of driving into Zion Canyon was just so magical and so exciting for all of us. That whole trip was phenomenal. That's Were awesome. you able to camp fairly successfully or was there a steep learning curve since you'd never really... Well, we, you know, we, we, we'd kind of practiced a couple of times in advance, um, but no, there was absolutely a learning curve. I mean, we got out there and bought a styrofoam cooler. So it's like, you know, you can't take all your food with you. So it's like, what are we going to do? We got to find somewhere to pick up food today. And oh yeah, keeping ice in this thing is a challenge. And uh, <laughs> there's a wind advisory, so we're not allowed to have a campfire. Hmm. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> That's interesting. And strategically planning for showers. That, you know, oh. when you're camping for two weeks, it's like, okay, so this campground has, you can pay for a shower. You get like a four minute shower for like $6. Okay. So we can go, we can go another day. No, no, no. We're gonna shower. <laughs> I mean, you know, figuring all those little things out that you don't think about. Your last question, you have a love for superheroes. Did this start when you were a kid and has your favorite superhero changed from then till now? Oh, it absolutely started as a kid. You know, once I got into uh, reading, I quickly 
moved into the comic book world. Matter of fact, I still have in boxes in my house, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old comic books. We had a, the comic book shop was in like the next town over from where I live. So my brother and I once a week would go to the comic book shop to get all of our comics. And, uh, oh, I, I loved, loved, loved it as a kid. And so I'm, uh, you know, particularly enjoying the, the rise of the Marvel universe and all the superhero movies and everything, really because it takes me back to my childhood and how much I love that. Now, in terms of my favorite superheroes, that's a tough one for me. I mean, certainly, you know, everybody's got to like Batman. Batman's awesome. But I liked Variety. Everybody knows about the Avengers now because of the, uh, you know, the movies and all of that. But back in, you know, the 70s and 80s, they, they were okay. But I liked those like big team comic books because they always had rotating casts. And actually one of my favorite characters ever was a character called the Black Knight. It was a Marvel character and, and he was in the Avengers for a while. I mean, this was a guy literally with like a magic sword and, you know, and armor. Because when I was a kid, I secretly wanted to grow up to either be Robin Hood or a knight in shining armor. I was very disappointed <laughs> to learn that those were not viable career options. So I, uh, I loved this kind of obscure character, the Black Knight. Dane Whitman was his name. Sometimes he rode on like a mechanical flying horse thing. Sometimes he actually had like a, a black, you know, Pegasus that he rode on. And But this little obscure C-list character, I, I loved him so much. And so uh, when one of the latest Marvel movies, The Eternals, came out, Dane Whitman, he's not the Black Knight yet in the movie, but Dane Whitman is in the movie. And that was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Oh, that's so, cool. So, I haven't so now, seen that one. So now I'm hoping that, that you know, they're going to do something with him and actually let him become the Black Knight. That wasn't just like a little Easter egg cameo thing. Because I'm like, oh my gosh, that is my favorite character of all time. <laughs> but considering they got the, uh, Kit Harrington, you know, who played Jon Snow in the Game of Thrones to play the role, I'm assuming that means they're going to do something with it. So mm. I've got my fingers crossed for the Black Knight. Well, Andrew, thank you again so much for, for talking with us about yourself, your experiences, and about Stage 1. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. You can find Stage 1 at their website, stage1.org, on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at The Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Do you have a favorite book you'd like to share with us or feedback for what types of guests you'd like to hear from? If so, send us a message through our website. And if you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. <laughs>